Hello everyone, welcome back to Aufhebunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli, I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Aufhebunga Bunga is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, both of whom are in the UK. Hi guys. Hey. Hey, what's up? What is up is uh, US imperialism is up. Uh, we are talking about uh, dollar hegemony specifically. We're going to be talking to Jakob Fagan and Dominic Loesder in just a moment about the class politics of the dollar system and an article they've written by that title. Uh, looking forward to this, guys. Phil, you 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 were the one who uh, suggested we do this, and indeed you're the producer of this episode. So why don't you tell us a little bit? Yeah, very much so. So the as we'll be discussing with the guys in a moment, uh, the piece that we're going to be discussing is something they published on a website associated with um, Brown University called Phenomenal World that was published earlier this year about the class politics of the dollar system. And as we'll see, it provides a very um, interesting new perspective on the politics of dollar hegemony at the global level. But rather than looking at the global level directly, it looks at it through the prism of American class politics, which um, should be uppermost in everyone's mind, I think, uh, the closer that we get to the US election this November. Yeah, I think it's also a good development of some of the episodes that we've been doing on MMT as well. Um, I guess taking a look at the politicization of some of these key financial instruments, some of these key kind of taken for granted economic ideas, um, obviously in a slightly in a different register and with a different um, a different focus to the MMT episodes. But yeah, good to do some uh, some economics, I think, some political economy, whatever that exactly refers to <laughs> well we'll find out uh i mean i also found it interesting precisely because of the introduction of a domestic class division antagonism uh which i wasn't really aware of in these discussions of the dollar system you know like i mean i you know in brazil we encounter it because uh as in most emerging markets there's a problem that mm. they need to accumulate dollars and that's money that isn't spent on domestic investment um and that's very obvious and it seems like a uh, a conflict between the, the core of, of the global capitalist economy and more peripheral countries like Brazil or indeed uh, even worse, or indeed it's even worse in poorer countries. Um, but the class dynamics, the fact that these play out uh, both not just within American class politics, but also at the uh, domestic level, like in Brazil, for example, was, uh, was a novel angle for me. Right. So just before we call up our guests, Dominic and Yakov, to talk about dollar hegemony, I should note that this is the first in a two-parter. Part two will be out in two weeks' time, in which we'll be talking to Daniel Bessner. A little bit more about the political aspects of dollar hegemony, as well as exploring U.S. foreign policy and what a left-wing alternative foreign policy would look like. That'll be out in two weeks. But for now, uh, let's call up Dominic and Yakov. So we're talking to Dominic Loyster today, who's an economist based in London, and Jakob Fagan, who's Associate Director of the Future of Capitalism at the Begrone Institute in Los Angeles. Hi, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Hello. And both of you um, published a piece called The Class Politics of the Dollar System on 1st of May um, earlier this year on the website Phenomenal World, and that's the piece that we're keen to talk to you um, about. Um, before we do that, could you maybe just tell us both um, a little bit about yourselves, where you're based, and how 
elaborating on this specific piece? So um, just let me start perhaps. So I'm based in London. Um, I'm an economist by training, macroeconomist. Um, I also have a background in political economy, in particular European and international political economy. Um, I worked a while in London as an applied macroeconomist and as a quant, and I'm actually going back to graduate school to do a PhD in economic history soon. Um, I'm Jakob Fagan. I, I'm based in Los Angeles and um, I am an economic historian by training. I initiate my PhD thesis, which will so hopefully soon be a book, was on the economic and financial reforms in the late Soviet Union and I am very generally interested in international political economy and distributional models of it. And how did you guys then come to write this piece together? So I think that um, both of us were had been interested in this topic for a while. Um, Jakob and I sort of knew each other, have been talking about it um, then and again. And I had initially um, pitched this piece to the Chain Family Institute in New York, and they were keen on it, and it seemed a very uh, topical thing to talk about at the time, given the the, the crisis and, and the huge um, dollar funding issue in the international money markets. So it was something that uh, had been coming up again and again since the crisis. And um, eventually, I think, Yakov, uh, I asked Yakov to join in, and I'm very grateful because Yakov is also an expert in these issues. Um, and that's, that's roughly why we wrote the articles, in response to this current ongoing debate about the dollar system. Yeah, uh, I think it was really fortuitous that Dominic uh, got in touch with me when he did, because I was already kind of thinking of writing something like this, and already had like some half-finished drafts actually in a folder, because I, for a year now I've been working uh, at the Bergeron Institute, and I realized actually as I'm kind of briefing my colleagues, briefing policymakers, and briefing others that, you know, this thing called money and international political economy is actually very, very hard. It's just that, you know, I was, I've been around it for my entire career and it's become extremely natural. And then when, you know, I was asked if there's a piece that could explain it all, I thought to myself and I thought, well, there's Michael Pettis's work who is extremely influential on both of us. And in many ways, we're just writing a footnote on Michael Pettis's work. Um, but in terms of one piece that I could use essentially to not only educate people, but to kind of explain how some, some policy options are limited and then some policy options have some more room than you think, there wasn't really anything out there. So I kind of started trying to write it. Um, that's useful to hear the background for that. Um, so, regard, so the piece is concerning the global status of the dollar and its impact on the U.S. political system. And just to ensure that we're all on the same page, could you explain? So, I mean, when we say the global status of the dollar, we mean its status as a global reserve currency. And can you just explain precisely what reserve currency means? So the term reserve currency, global reserve currency, refers to the currency that many central banks hold as part of their foreign exchange reserves. So countries hold reserves um, available to balance the payments of their country, to influence foreign exchange rates, um, the, the exchange rate of their currency. That's particularly important for developing countries with uh, export-based growth models who need to stabilize their 
often unstable currencies. And other major financial institutions, you know, acquire dollar reserves to prepare for investment or transactions and to to meet international debt obligations. And these reserves are assets denominated in dollars, and they can take any form, many forms, any form of bond, treasury bill, or government security. And the reserve currency status simply means that the currency composition of these reserves is heavily skewed towards that reserve currency, in this case, the dollar. So the reason for that is that, you know, more than 60% or so of all foreign bank reserves are dollar denominated, a, lo- a large proportion of the world's debt is denominated in dollars, and something like, I think, 80% of the trade between emerging markets is also invoiced in dollars. And there are multiple reasons why, um, how that system sort of came into came into being. So there are these network effects that people talk about, and, and the fact that, the fact that we mentioned in the article that American capital markets are quite sophisticated and deep and liquid, but the history um, of how it evolved is far more complicated, I think. So how, yeah, I think, uh, sorry, George here, um, how would you summarize this history? Because obviously um, the dollar wasn't always the world's reserve currency. How did this, could you, for our listeners, I guess, sum, sum this complex um, story up? Yeah, well, I think they're actually isn't a simple story because the way we describe the system is that the system is hybrid. It's both a private system in that most dollars are actually privately issued, right, as credit instruments. And it's also a public system insofar as it's backstopped by American financial, government financial institutions, primarily the Federal Reserve. And it is also, and other central banks have to participate in it, right? How it came about is extremely circular. Um, In fact, I don't think it was exactly planned. In some ways, it kind of emerges out of globalization. Um, Before the dollar system as we know it now, we had the Bretton Woods system, which was a kind of set of exchange rates pegged pegged to gold, which was in turn pegged to the dollar. So that was already kind of a formally dollarized system. And then you had capital controls and relatively low levels of financialization. Now, that system assumed that the United States would essentially run a permanent trade surplus. Um, That obviously didn't happen as Europe recovered, as Japan recovered, and that pushed the US dollar away from the gold peg. So eventually, Nixon takes us off of gold, and uh, you know the system of these fixed uh, fixed currency prices breaks down. Well, ends the the currency prices have been breaking down since before then, and one of the reasons that system starts to break down is the emergence of what's called the euro dollar. Right, a euro dollar is just a bank deposit or any other money market instrument at this point could also be a repo agreement it could be anything um, a number of other things that is held in a non-american domiciled financial institution and that simply means that that institution doesn't have access to the federal reserve balance sheet right it doesn't have access right. to reserves and thus it is a pure credit instrument it's more let's say it has slightly less moneyness than other dollars but it isn't distinguishable in price from those mm-hmm. unless something goes wrong. Like, for example, it did in 08, like when you had mm-hmm. the spread open. 
Um, the euro dollar initially kind of, well, initially there are many stories as how the idea came together, but it very quickly, the major tool of it became to essentially uh, get around capital controls uh, as, as multinational corporations expanded be, uh, across the Atlantic. And eventually it kind of overtook the Bretton Woods system and the system was never really reconstructed. And, you know, through a series of ad hoc agreements, we kind of came to this private, semi-private system um, mm. that we saw like emerge over 20, 30 years. I mean, there's a wildly complicated timeline to this and wildly complex sets of actors and interests, right? Mm. But here we are. And the, the really significant, two significant recent dates is the 1998 Asian financial crisis, right? When you had currency crises in all the really rapidly um, developing uh, Asian tiger economies. And the lesson they learned is it's better to accumulate dollar reserves than deal with the IMF. Mm. The second great event is the housing crisis, after which uh, the Fed backstopped that giant global market very explicitly mm. through swap lines and did it again in the COVID crisis uh, with swap lines and a repurchase re uh, facility for collateral. And also the implementation of Basel III, which essentially made U.S. Treasury or like official U.S. collateral to backstop the system legally embedded as something more or less necessary for you as a large financial institution. Hmm. I'm, I'm sure we'll dig into some of the, the detail there, but just I have, have a quick follow up on this. What what would you say is the date that we can say this is the, the start of the age of dollar hegemony or the age of the, the dollar being the kind of global reserve currency? Would you would you put a, a specific date on it? Well, I think you have to distinguish between the dollar as like a unit of account, right? And the dollar as a entity, as a public entity, right? So the dollar becomes the global reserve currency officially in 1944 with Bretton Woods. That's codified, but that's a dollar that's at least in theory a fully public dollar, right? Um, right. What emerges alongside of it is a credit dollar, right? which is the real like money supply of the world, so to say. And I think that emerges, I don't know, if I were to peg it, it would be, what do you think? I think it's like around 1968, I think is when you really start seeing it, when you get mm -hmm. the kind of attempt to pool gold between the Bretton Woods, major Bretton Woods economy, European economies to keep the thing from sliding into crisis, which it eventually does. Mm -hmm. So normally the um, yeah, it's, it's it's good to hear useful and it also having the dates is helpful as well to line everything up. And normally when people talk about the um, impact of the U.S. Um, of the dollar being the world's reserve currency and the fact that it's also the national currency of the U.S., this is considered in terms of interstate relations. So how this affects the relations of the U.S. to other major economic actors, as well as developing countries, weaker and poorer countries. Um, so it's usually cast under the terms of exorbitant privilege. And could you explain to us what exorbitant privilege means? I mean, I think there are various um, parts to this entire question. I think the first... Um privilege that accrues to the United States um, that is usually brought up is the fact that the United States doesn't have to worry about its deficit because there's an inexhaustible demand for U.S. government debt. Um, and you could argue that this allow because people want to, of course, that they need 
high quality dollar assets to um if you like uh, collateralize or they, they use it they needed to to back up this this global wholesale money market that is made up of dollar credits and they need um some some form of um uh, high quality asset usually treasuries or or substitutes to um to 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 back up the system and you could argue that this allows this this demand for government debt allows the US um, to run amok and be fiscally irresponsible. And I think uh, in geostrategic terms, um, one could argue that that also involves that you can you can spend a great deal on your military without worrying about the the fiscal problems um, and the run on your currency down the road. And indeed, one of the major scholars of the dollar and of American hegemony. A man called Hermann Mark Schwartz, who's actually writing a response to our piece, he uh, stresses this point that the huge military spending wouldn't perhaps be possible without the dollar system. I think the general point about the deficit is true, but we also argue that this privilege you know, has side effects and that we can use the deficit for different purposes. We can use it as a public good. And I think Yakov, uh, in particular, knows a lot about this and can can say more about that later on. There's another um, another way in which uh, it confers a great deal of power and privilege to the United States in in political terms, and that relates perhaps to the the swap lines that we discussed uh, that Yakov yeah. mentioned just now. Um, so, as I mentioned at the beginning, these swap lines were instituted, I think, on on a large scale during the financial crisis, um, so after 2008 and from 2009 onwards to alleviate some of these dollar funding issues, especially in the developing uh, world, but also in Europe where you had a great deal of dollar-denominated you know, liabilities in, on uh, European balance sheets that simply required this, this, uh, the, these dollar swap lines. So just, just, to, just to give a, um, a short definition of what these swap lines, how they work, usually a foreign central, yeah. they're between um, central banks and what happens is that a foreign foreign central bank draws, um, when it draws on its swap line with the Federal Reserve, the foreign central bank sells a specified amount of its currency to the Fed in exchange for dollars at the you know, at the prevailing market exchange rate, and the Fed holds the currency in an account um, at that foreign central bank, and the dollars that the Fed provides are deposited in, in an account that, it, that the foreign central bank maintains at the Fed. In, in New York, usually. At the same time, the Fed and the Foreign Central Bank enter into a binding agreement for a second transaction that obligates the Foreign Central Bank to uh, to buy back its currency on a specified future date at the same exchange rate. So the second transaction sort of unwinds the first. And the, at the conclusion of the second transaction in this, in this swap, the Foreign Central Bank pays some sort of interest, so at, at a market-based rate, to the Fed. So that's... Uh, the short version of how these these swap lines work, and they were very very important to alleviate these funding issues in the dollar market back then, and they've become very important again now. And I think I think somebody uh, pointed out I can't remember who it was that there was a rather scary phone call from Erdogan and Turkey happens to rely very much on these swap lines to I think Donald Trump and essentially Erdogan was asking Trump for these swap lines. And someone pointed out that that's rather scary because now Donald Trump actually knows that these swap lines exist <laughs> and that other people want them. Yeah. So, 
And, you know, people have pointed out that the Fed can sort of play a monetary triage with country where it decides who gets a swap line or not. But as we point out, the Fed has since taken, it has somewhat sort of circumvented that entire political um, game by opening up a different facility, so a repo facility for foreign international monetary authorities. Um, this is this allow so this repo facility allows other central banks and monetary authorities to directly exchange their their treasury securities for dollars, which means that they don't have to they don't have to um, sell them outright into a market into a market that's actually probably quite liquid. So in, in that in, in doing so, the Fed creates an additional source of dollar liquidity for any central bank. So it might well be that. Uh, the U.S. has a great deal of power via these these swap lines, but the Fed has taken the initiative and sort of um, made these these this funding available to everyone else. Uh, just to kind of yeah, add, I think yeah. that's extremely illustrative of kind of the way this of our argument, right? Is that even if the United States can get a lot of benefits, and we're not saying it doesn't, it's also bound by this system, right? If the Fed didn't want to open up that facility, we would have had quite an impact on the American economy and on the world economy. So it's kind of a stone that carries us all down together. But it's also a stone that is there because it's, we argue, is very good for various elites in various contexts and actually acts as a homogenizing to like a homogenizing instrument for global elites. Right, that divides us across country lines, not just within them. I mean, it's uh, not. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's so the cross-cutting mistake. effects of the of this um, dollar hegemony and the way in which it. And I mean, I think in fact this is the most definitely the most interesting and incisive part of the piece is how it considers these relations in cross-national class terms. But before we get to that, just two very two quick follow-ups on before we um, get to the meat of your thesis on the internal effects of dollar hegemony on the US itself, which is how far are the swap lines intertwined with um, geopolitical considerations you've mentioned and also the kind of monetary triage of the um, uh, the Federal Bank of the Federal Reserve, sorry, but also how far could we say that um, the Federal Reserve has effectively become a planetary central bank as a result of the swap lines? So I think there's no doubt if, if uh, this happens to be, uh, you know, the dollar happens to be the key currency, then reserve currency, and the Fed um, as a result has an enormous amount of power, of course, and, and not only in terms of uh, swap lines, it's also the fact that that the dollar system gives the Fed and, and the United States government a lot of power to implement sanctions. And how that works is that a lot of these um, transactions between foreign firms, so even if, if firm A has to pay firm B for something, let's say the shipment of, of iron ore or lumber, um, the transaction, the payments, the payments are actually wrapped up usually via correspondent banks in, in New York City, which, be, which basically means that um, the U.S. has jurisdiction over these these transactions because these correspondent banks um, have an account with the Fed, and as, as such, they're seen as safe counterparties. That's why they're used to 
settle these payments between foreign firms, even if neither of those firms is actually based in the United States. So what happens in practice is that actually there's a, a transfer of reserves between the correspondent correspondence banks. But the point is that the Fed and, and the US government, of course, can intervene in that process because it has jurisdiction over that, that particular part of the payment system. And, and as, you, as you point out, it is abuse for uh, political means. I mean, there are sanctions levied against countries like Iran, and we've seen swap lines denied to countries, uh, in particular Indonesia was one prominent example. Um, but as we said, partly the Fed has stepped in and and straightened this out, as Yakov said, because if it didn't, the repercussions down the road for the US would be quite enormous. Uh, and the real the point of our article was also to to address the fact that this entire um, global dollar system is, is an emergent property of the preferences of elites. It might be used as a um, geostrategic tool by the US, but really it evolved as something else. And I think that's really the meat of our argument. So um, in your piece, um, you actually kind of turn some of these questions around, which is to consider the internal effects of US politics. Uh, and especially uh, class relations of the global status of the dollar. So maybe you could talk us through this. How does it how does it impact uh, domestically in the U.S.? Um, so argument is because the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency, the U.S. is always going to run a, c- a current account deficit, right? Which essentially means a trade deficit, right? On the other hand, correspondingly, via double entry accounting, it's going to run a capital account surplus. So it means there's going to be more money coming into the U.S. as investment than there is going to be coming out because of uh, right, because of the demand for U.S. assets. Now, what that essentially means is that creates a very difficult distributional problem. Is how do you what do you put those inflows into right? And what we have put it into, because we've is largely private private assets, right? And that expands certain industries and certain people's wealth at the expense of others. And that has a long-term, we think, political effect. Um, I think we're going to get into it later, but we kind of have jokingly used this term that the U.S. has Dutch disease because under the political theory of Dutch disease – what really happens in these circumstances is when you have one leading industry, say like import of global uh, global cash flows, right? It starts to crowd out other industries, and in many ways, it makes servicing the elites who have cash the entire economy, right? So it creates a tremendous imbalance internally. Yeah. I mean, actually, maybe it would be worth at this point just to explain out the mechanism of Dutch disease, what what it actually is for those who aren't familiar. Um, sure. So in the classical kind of Dutch disease story, there is a country, um, and it's based on the Dutch, right, on um, the Netherlands. Um, it discovers a natural resource. Um, it begins to export that natural resource like crazy, right? that makes its currency appreciate and then that crowds out other industries because they can't export and and it becomes very cheap to import and that reshapes the internal economy towards kind of one rent-based 
uh, business, right? Mm. Now, there's also a kind of political expansion on that purely rates-based story that Dutch disease is actually a political configuration, right? It happens because the increasing political power of that faction of the elite checks any attempts to, you know, prevent it, right? To create counter uh, policies that counter it. A kind of great negative example, right? A great null hypothesis for that is Norway, which should have Dutch disease, but doesn't to a large extent because their political elite kind of tried to get ahead of it by creating the Norwegian oil fund, the sovereign wealth fund that funds the pensions and is the world's largest institutional investor now, right? Something like 8% of world assets, right? And that was that was a way to manage these dynamics before they, you know, morph the political atmosphere. Right. Whereas in the U.S., you argue that this hasn't happened, but it's a particular case, the U.S., because its main export is the dollar. So maybe. Yes. Yeah. So how does that exactly work then? And, and then uh, as a consequence, who benefits from that in the U.S.? Well, it works, uh, you know, Dominic kind of explained the mechanisms, right, of the demand for the dollars and the need for collateral, right, dollar-based collateral to back up this credit. And it works for those entities that can issue high-quality or like a treasury-like dollar collateral. It works for the owners of financial wealth because there's always, there are going to be large inflows into U.S. Uh, equities markets, as you know, we've been seeing over the past weeks, though not today because for many reasons. And, uh, and that it increases returns to wealth, right? Through the cash flow mechanism. Yeah. It's good for those industries. It's actually quite good for some industries that are, innovative uh it's been very good for silicon valley because it mm. makes venture capital extremely cheap and they can lose all the money they want um mm. but it's not good for many other industries right and it's not good for wages because it creates uh, an expanding wage gap both due to its political effects and due to the distributional kind of productivity effects so just to, to put it in quite pointed terms, then the big the big winners are the holders of financial capital. Silicon Valley also benefits massively, and it's it's labor that that loses from from yes. this situation. And this isn't just an American story, right? What we are stressing is labor is losing in all these situations in different contexts, right? So for the countries that need to accumulate dollar assets, right, they have to run. A large trade deficit if they don't have a natural resource. I mean, I'm sorry, trade surplus. And the way you run a trade surplus is essentially you produce more than you consume, which is the repression of the wage share, right? So we all know that there's this thing as export-like growth, and it's been incredibly successful in China, for example. But that starts to break down because you're getting not like very large nominal gains at the beginning, but increasingly smaller uh, real gains, right? And eventually, it turns into what it is, which is very disadvantageous exploitation. In other contexts, it also means you're oversaving, right, from the government that could have gone into invest also investment into other kinds of goods. Mm. So it's it's not a good system, I think, for anyone except national elites who benefit from that and who can also use that offshore system. And this is I, I wrote a different article about that. It's incredibly intertwined and in many ways even depends 
on the uh, on these offshore, you know, tax of, uh, centers of tax avo avoidance. You can then store that loot in. <laughs> just to, just to um, I can't approve on that on, on that description because it was quite comprehensive. But there's one specific example of how this plays out domestically in the U.S. and that is because the uh, financial industry in the U.S. can intermediate these capital inflows it also distorts incentives in the financial markets. So one of the reasons why you saw this huge explosion of um, mortgage-backed securities uh, in, mm. in the run-up to the crisis, because there was a sheer endless demand for high-quality dollar-denominated uh, assets. So the banks would get very creative, and even foreign banks would get involved in, via their New York um, subsidiaries, involved in the U.S. mortgage markets to take you know, fairly awful mortgage loans and somehow package, the, package them up and securitize them and slap a triple A AAA rating on them and to sell them off immediately into the global um, money market, into to European banks and, and to Asian investors, et cetera. And that's one way the elites of other countries where savings have accumulated um, due to large distortions in purchasing power and, and, and inequality in those countries, they can uh, push their excess savings into these dollar assets and on the other end of that uh, is the u.s financial system which says oh here are some um you know newly securitized mortgage loans they're quite valuable they're a different form of money so to say and that that begets mm -hmm. this horrible process of, of inflating asset prices in the housing market and i think it's it really the financial crisis is actually a crisis of the um of the dollar system in that sense mm -hmm. So just to pick up on a on a point that that you um oh go ahead no no it's, it's just to pick up on a a point there about productivity um could you talk us a little through how this how this works how does this damage um productivity specifically this situation so I think one thing that frustrated me about the response to the piece is that there was a lot of uh, a lot of focus on the actual exchange rates. And I'll get back to why that's relevant to the productivity question. The there was some you know criticism of, of, of the way we we talked about the 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 damage done by an appreciating dollar um, over time. But really I mean first of all if you look at the the trade weighted real dollar it, it does appreciate over time. Um, so you know it, it happens to it appreciated a lot between 1997 and 2002 and um, it declined, I think, it, it appreciated by, I think, 20% against its major trading partners. And it may have declined thereafter, but it was still well above its average in the uh, preceding decade. But it's not really the point. I think the point is that, A, the United States has a currency that, um, given its safe haven status, appreciates during crises, which mm -hmm. hurts very much. And we saw this back in March when it appreciated very severely. Uh, but th the main point is that the exchange rate doesn't strictly matter. It matters only how that rate moves towards uh, re relative to economic fundamentals. And the, the simplest way to think about this is um, in thinking of um, how the exchange rate or floating exchange rate should work for, for how they should go move uh, along with underlying economic conditions. So usually... Uh, purchasing power should roughly correspond to productivity growth over time. So that means developing countries 
they move up the income ladder. Um, there's wage growth and productivity growth. And by, while they do so, they experience an appreciating uh, exchange rate right. uh, relative to advanced economies. Um, and similarly, the dollar should be flat in real terms if U.S. productivity grows at the same rate as their trading partners. But that hasn't happened. So if you look at it from the uh, current account perspective, if the current account was relatively balanced in 1995, then a more expensive real exchange rate over time should have led to a bigger deficit, which it has. And in general, the dollar has been more expensive uh, since it has uh, than it was in 1995. The point is that these currency inflows, these dollar inflows are coming from countries that control their own exchange rates. So despite that, despite the increase in the relative purchasing power of emerging market currencies, there hasn't been a decline of the dollar. So in other words, you didn't have the same productivity growth in, in the United States, and you would have otherwise have seen a an, an appreciate a depreciating dollar relative to other countries' um, currencies, other countries where they have, that have experienced a higher growth in productivity, but that hasn't happened. So what that means is, the dollar is overvalued relative to what it should be, given right. the divergent fundamentals between the U.S. and its major trading partners. So in other words, even if the dollar has remained stable nominally, which it hasn't, it actually appreciated, it would still have, in effect, appreciated. So I think that's something we should have made more clear. But I think, as Yakov said, it wasn't really the focus of our article. It was more to point, uh, to point out the distributional elements at both right. sides of the system. And there's actually a new paper, a relatively new paper by uh, two economists, Campbell and Pune, that use a different kind of measure that they call the weighted average relative unit of labor cost that kind of essentially recalculates things and lines it up with Dominic's description. So just just to kind of, um, I guess, push the description or the explanation forward a bit, if the dollar is overvalued, is, this a, is it masking... Um, uh, a lack of productivity increase, or does it actually provide incentives? Does it does it actually damage productivity? Have him have an impact on 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 what is produced in the U.S. I mean, absolutely, it it does, right? It tells you. I th uh, one of I, both of our economic biases is we're very post-Keynesian leaning, and because of that, we think investment and productivity are very tightly linked, right? And what you're seeing actually, and this will get to I think some other questions you might have is these political essentially distortions are distortions in investment, which are leading towards lower productivity. I mean, I kind of have a joke, right? Is that we don't really have a savings glut, we have an investment dearth. Mm. So one so uh, what you already picked up on the issue of the um, some of the pushback you've got and Dominic has talked through um, questions of um, how far the dollar has appreciated over the time period in question. One of the core claims of the thesis then is that dollar appreciation eats into living standards by driving up the cost of medical care and education and that this has offset gains from um, uh, for American workers that they might have otherwise benefited from the imports of cheaper consumer goods. So could you explain the mechanism by which you get dollar appreciation coming from its status as a reserve currency that inflates the costs of medical care and education 
and eats into people's living standards. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of mechanisms and a couple of explanations for that. And actually, I think we'll talk about that. I don't think they're self, uh, I don't think they're contradictory, but our explanation is that to a large, one of the mechanisms for that is that as you're losing essentially your tradable goods, right? Stuff that you can export, you have to make a profit somewhere else. And that pushes up the, the cost of non-tradables and the classic Dutch disease model. And these non-tradables tend to be services and things literally you can't trade. So things like medicine, right, are going to be go up in price in order to create kind of the profit rate you've lost in the tradables. This, this, things like education will do that also. And yeah, that's kind of this, that's our, that's our mechanism, I think, in a nutshell. I think that explains it well. So and one of the one of the other um, explanations that is given for the appreciation of medicine and education is the Bo, so-called Bowmol effect. Mm-hmm. Um, why would you dis- if you can tell us what the Bowmol effect is and why would you discount it in this instance? So the Bowmol cost disease is this mechanism postulated by two economists in the 60s, Baumol and Bowden. They argue essentially that wages and costs in sectors with little productivity growth will continue growing if there is productivity growth in other sectors. So the classical example is that musicians get paid a lot more now now than they were 100 years ago even, but playing a classical symphony is about the same thing, right? Um, we actually don't necessarily disagree with that. I think we have complementary explanations, right? Um, our explanation, and Baumol points this out, actually, in a new book of his, is that Baumol's cost disease is, is easily overcomable, right? If you're investing in the right things, if you are making sure people's wages co- uh, catch up the cost disease, Argument is that the dollar system not only accelerates this, and uh, there's a mechanism behind it that I think is particularly interesting I'll get to, but makes it much more difficult to respond to that. Now, in terms of the actual price effects themselves, there's actually some very interesting work about how much Baumol's cost disease explains some of it. Uh, There's a literally brand new paper by Ali Sen from March 2020. He's an economist at the University of Essex that I only found a few days ago, actually. And he makes a very interesting point that Baumol assumes that labor productivity in all service sectors, essentially, is going to be relatively small, right, compared to producer goods sectors, compared to these kind of, like, produced things. Well, Ali says that's actually not true. Um, By his measure, there are what he calls progressive services, which are services in which there has been a big increase in actual labor productivity, not just a Baumol one. So that's, he, he says it's wholesale trade, transport and storage, post and telecommunications, mm-hmm. which is the IT sector, and financial mm-hmm. intermediation. And then he says the more stagnant ones are hotels, real estate, renting of, materi- uh, of machinery, public administration, and compulsive social security, education, health uh, work, and uh, health and social services, and other community pr- pr- uh, services. I think that at, like just listing those out kind of shows where the biases that are built into the system are. But he goes further, actually. Yeah. He makes this. He actually shows that between 1970 and 1995, uh, the U.S. is overall losing its productivity growth. Right? 
Um, then in 1995, something happens. The U.S. Is actually has done a lot of investment over the last 20 years into the IT industry. And you have the dot-com boom. And everyone realizes and productivity goes up, wages relatively go up. It seems like a great economy. And since then, the U.S. has been more productive than most OECD countries. However, he said that's masking something because the stagnant industries in the U.S., are actually more stagnant than anywhere else in the world, right? Uh, and so what we think this implies, and we probably would, if we had the space time, we'd follow up, is the Dutch disease is a political channel, while Balmol's disease ex uh, is also a cost channel, and they're complementary. In fact, like this paper we found says Balmol's disease, I think, explains 25% of the price growth, Right. The main reason we were, aren't able to reply, respond to this is because of the investment dis, uh, distortions that the dollar system creates, right, in the United States, right. if we're talking about the United States. Yeah. So, so, so your system is complementary to the BOMOL system. Yes, and I would say so. And you'd suspect then that for the... Um, the rest of this inflate of the inflated costs, which so if twenty if the Bowmold effect can account for roughly twenty five percent, according to this economist from Essex, you suspect that the rest can be accounted for through the mechanisms that you've been describing. At least some of it, I think, and the rest, I think, through policy failures that are motivated by this mechanism. Can I just jump in for a clarification there, just um, because uh, especially if you don't have what the Bowmall effect is uh, at the forefront of your mind, as <laughs> as is my case, um, when we're talking about stagnant industries in the US, which are more stagnant there, in fact, than they are elsewhere, which are masked by the dollar system, which ones would, you know, just summing this up, which ones are they uh, specifically? So... Um in this paper in particular, he actually only looks at the service side, but we also know, you know, the manufacturing side has had not great growth. But this, uh, as he mentioned, it's going to be hotels and restaurants, uh, real estate administration ser uh, services, education, public mm -hmm. administration, um, medic uh, medic medicine, and basically right, other yeah. kind of community services. And those, I mean, th those will have large BOMAL effects, I think. But like, and it makes sense. But once you start kind of decomposing that, like he did, it, it actually hints that this isn't accidental. And I think BOMAL himself kind of suggested that in a recent book, this is the result of us not countering it. Right, and, 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 and not and investing a, in the right things. Yeah, and a consequence of the uh, direct consequence of the dollar system is um, effectively prices being raised on these services as a way of increasing profits because they can't profits can't be captured from other areas such as uh, manufacturing exports. Yes, and because you've got all these inflows right into dollar assets, you know the, those inflows need to be validated by cash flow somewhere. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes so sense. So all of that was, it was useful to talk um, for Alex to elicit some more of the um, effect of, um, of the Bowmall effect to say effect twice. Anyway, I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm wrapping myself in knots. Let me move on to the next question. So a lot. So your argument depends on the global status of the dollar. And there are some people who say the dollar is going to tank. And there was a recent article in Bloomberg about this. Um, why do you? Why are you guys confident that the status of the dollar, its resilience, will continue for the foreseeable future? So, just to um, 
just to address this um, very recent article in Bloomberg by a man called Stephen Roach, who used to be, I think, chief economist of Morgan Stanley, is now at Yale, and writes these um, doomsday dollar pieces, I think, every few years. And I think he's always um, wrong in the same way. And in this case, the way he, he, he gets it wrong is to presume that the inflows of dollars to the United States are somehow driven by a shortfall of savings in the U.S., so meaning that the U.S. relies on foreign sa foreign savings to finance um, investment and consumption domestically, but this isn't the case, as we said. Um, you know, there are developments abroad, as we mentioned, and as we mentioned in the article, that distort the income distribution in certain certain countries and lead to you know far a, a greater amount of of national income in in sectors that have higher saving savings rates and therefore have excess savings. Uh, therefore, the national savings rate is higher, and therefore they have to export these savings, and that explains why the capital is pushed into the United States. If it were the other way around, as Stephen Roach presumes in this article, um, you would expect um, the U.S. sort of bidding up the price of capital. In other words, you would expect to see higher domestic interest rates in the U.S. throughout the period of, of large domestic um, of large dollar inflows. To attract foreign capital because they're they require it to meet the to close the gap between savings and investments um, domestically. So if that were the case, it would mean that um, the United that, that the United States needs to import capital specifically to bridge that gap. But it is not the case. I mean, the the increase in domestic savings has no predictable effects on on, on the current account surplus. And to put this in simpler terms, just to give an example, if you know, foreigners have, let's say, a thousand dollars in excess savings that they have to, that they decide to invest in the U.S. because it has the most attractive capital markets, etc., and has you know deep liquid markets in these benchmark assets. Um, that creates a thousand dollar U.S. capital account surplus if they invested it in the U.S. and a corresponding thousand uh, dollar current account deficit, as Yakov pointed out earlier. And this requires U.S. investment to exceed U.S. savings by exactly $1,000. So what would happen following Stephen Roach and you know, other people's contention that it's that this is endogen, you know, endogenously created by a, a savings shortfall, what would happen if Washington were to implement policies that are designed to raise the U.S. savings rate or if, if people suddenly had a greater propensity to save? So if foreigners still invest $1,000 of their excess savings into purchasing U.S. assets, the gap between U.S. investments and savings would not drop to you know, $800 if, let's say, U.S. savings have been raised by $200. They would still remain at $1,000 because the gap between investments and savings is determined completely or almost entirely ex exogenously by decisions to invest abroad. And if that is the case, as long as this demand persists, abroad, if the global wholesale money markets, this um, uh, ecosystem that Yakov described earlier, where, that relies, that relies um, for collateral on these high quality dollar denominated assets, as long as that exists, and as long as any alternative is wanting, and as long as there aren't any um, major redistributional policies in the source countries, so the countries that actually, that actually export these savings, then this dynamic will continue unless, let's say, there's a artificial barrier that prevents capital from flowing in, 
which in this there there are these proposals that say we should tax capital inflows um which may or may not work but the point is that if you accept that 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 premise is wrong then Stephen Roach's argument doesn't hold up doesn't and, and another part of his argument and other arguments seem to rely on the fact that people don't want to help the United States close their investment savings gap anymore because they've lost faith in the US system so in other words I think that Bloomberg article seems to talk a lot about how because Trump therefore the US dollar will fall because of how yeah. the dollar will be impecuniary because Donald Trump is such a, a, a dangerous president and people will lose faith in the financial system and in the political system and therefore no longer direct their savings to the United States but elsewhere. And this is a fallacy because um, they, can, they can't really direct them elsewhere really and it doesn't depend on the faith in the, um, in the president really. It depends on the quality of capital markets and the availability of these high quality assets and ultimately on the the ability to of the of the treasury to tax because that of course gives the gives value to the the treasuries so i think these arguments are they're either wanting on matters of causality as uh, roach's argument is or they simply don't understand what determines the the imbalances to begin with so to summarize it's the sustainability of the dollar is um as the global reserve currency is based on the propensity of foreigners to invest in in the states more than it is on the US saver. Is that right? That's exactly right. I want to bring George in. Yeah, yeah. So George to talk about the solutions that you offer in the piece. Over to you, George. Yeah, no, I guess a question on the politics of all of this in terms of what we should do about this uh, dollar dominance. Um, so in terms of practical institutional solutions your solution is essentially to to treat the dollar as a global public good um could you talk us through a little bit what this what this means and what this might look like in terms of um altering the situation yeah so i think the logic of the political logic we use is that the dollar is a global public good because it's not just the domain of the u.s to use it or even to issue it sometimes in practice. It's the domain of this hybrid system that is both public and private. And the privilege of using that system and the tiers of using it is where that system is flawed in many ways and often unjust. So our solutions are kind of, we offered in the paper are threefold. Uh, Dominic suggested another one. I can address that and why we decided not to go with it. Um, our first solution is very simply that we should, like, it, uh, as I always say, it's not a savings gap, right? It's savings are whatever. It's the investment gap. It's if you're not investing it in the right things to boost productivity mm -hmm. and wages, good quality jobs and social services then it's a problem if not well it's free money so one solution we propose is to particularly establish a set of investment institutions in the u.s in order to do some of that um one feature of those institutions i think is quite innovative at least uh in the big literature on that is that the like fannie and freddie these institutions will issue their own debt onto the market uh, that have a that has a higher uh, that has a higher yield for uh, than um, 
than uh, the standard U.S. Treasuries, and that's very attractive to investors, and it'll siphon some of that off, that mm. high demand for high yield out of like the stock market into public goods, right? Um, the neat little feature of these things is going to be that if you want liquidity, if you want the safety of a U.S. Treasury, we'll guarantee the Fed will either give you a U.S. Treasury or accept it uh, on a big haircut, but then you don't have the same liquidity. Then you've lost some money. So the investor kind of gets to choose. Either they you know, hold the yield and get paid a bit more, or they – uh, cash it out and lose and take a big haircut, but they have the money they need to meet a prior commitment. And, you know, that also adds to global financial stability. So I think it's a pretty good deal for everyone. Um, right. The other, so, and that can be, you know, used to build infrastructure. For example, the U.S. has something like 30 years of output gap capacity, of output mm. gap that can be closed. So we can just we have a lot of work to do, and that'll do a lot of things domestically while, you know, creating mm. a public good for the world. The other thing we've argued, which might be, I actually think this will be pr pretty achievable politically in a Biden administration. That's actually something, you know, moderate Democrats like is building stuff. The right. more difficult asks are um, this idea of how we restructure trade, right? that instead of having the IMF come in after the fact of a crisis and impose austerity, right, which is exactly when you don't want to do it, we include kind of a swap of guarantees in any trade treaty the United States is engaged in. So in exchange for not uh, running excessive uh, trade surpluses the and maybe some other policies, the U.S. will guarantee you access to the Federal Reserve balance sheet if you have a currency problem. Right. And again, to me, that's a very fair trade. And that reduces some of the perverse incentives of that system. I think our most radical ask, which actually was inspired by Nathan Tonkas, which he had a great idea, right, is the real way you solve this thing, and in the long run, I think it's what we're going to have to do, is to do what John Maynard Keynes wanted to do and establish some kind of global clearing system based on a essentially global store of value, which he called Bancor. That's going to take a tremendous amount of political consensus, and honestly, I, I just don't see it happening even maybe a, in the near future of like – maybe even my lifetime, but an alternative way to kind of make that synthetic is to let the IMF have a guaranteed swap line with the Fed and let the IMF essentially use special drawing rights as that, you know, global money supply instead of dollars. And if you need dollars to pay your commitments, then you can exchange those as DRs in a currency swap for actual dollars. Right. So um, that would solve a lot of problems, Just plug a lot of holes. So, so I guess the, the the conclusion in terms of the the viability or the the plausibility of these these three options, essentially building stuff. And correct me if I'm if I'm kind of summarising these too crudely. Um, building stuff, uh, restructuring trade, or having a global clearing system. I mean that that first one you think is it is possible um, within. I, I don't even think I, I think it's not even possible, but I think it's probable. So we so we're going to see a potential change in the dominance of of the dollar then if if it does happen that that biden 
wins in twenty in well, like this year? Well, I don't think it's going to. It's it's not going to change the dominance of the dollar. It'll change the redistributive effects. Some of the domestic right. U.S. redistributive effects of this system. But I, I think it's that could be quite likely. So I suppose to wrap it up, I've got a question regarding, um, again, building, I suppose, on the issue of long-term projection into the future. A lot of the, or the what you make clear in your piece is that the global status of the dollar is also predicated on the um, incapacity of other currencies to um, function in the same way. And in particular, so the euro, at the beginning when the euro was founded, people had the hope that it might become a kind of counterweight to the global status of the dollar. And you make clear, both of you in the article, that the um, this simply hasn't happened and that the euro has been, um, it's the lack of integration in the eurozone means that it simply doesn't have the depth that is required of a financial market in order for the euro to function or to be as attractive as the dollar. So... Can you maybe tell us about how you see um, the eurozone playing out vis-a-vis -vis the dollar and a long-term projection for global institutions with respect to the eurozone? Well, I mean, we could do an entire podcast on, on the many dysfunctions and travails of the eurozone. Uh, we've um, tried to do that. We'll have you back on to do it, in fact. Hopefully. Um, well, yes, there's a major point in the article that says, you know, even if uh, there's something that uh, somehow dismantles, you know, makes the dollar less attractive, or if, if suddenly there's no treasury market anymore, um, what, what what the the currency uh, the composition of reserves change if there were a second uh, similar key currency, in other words, the euro? A decent amount of, of of reserves are already made up of euros. I think it's perhaps 20%, something like that. But the euro, as you mentioned, the eurozone doesn't have things that make the dollar attractive in the first place. So what makes the dollar attractive? It's a sophisticated um, banking system and capital markets uh, union that the United States has. So it has a common payment system, etc. It has an abundance of high quality assets in that currency, treasury bills and close substitutes, backed up by a treasury that um, has the power to tax. These things are obviously not there in the eurozone, and of course there have been many attempts to complete the design of the monetary union since its inception, and those involve indeed creating a banking union with a backstop financial system, creating a common borrowing mechanism, and a common well, a European safe asset, so a, a euro bond in other words, and then some form of um, finance ministry um, that would somehow you know, be able to to issue these these bonds a, a, a kind of equivalent to the treasury in, in the us now i personally don't think that these things are technically insurmountable however fragmented the capital markets and financial markets in europe are so they are you know they have very clear home biases european banks tend to you know, largely you know be involved in their own capital markets in other words they they have the greatest share of Italian bonds are held by Italian banks and, and, and so on and so forth. And one of the attempts to remedy this is the capital markets union that will come alongside the banking union. Um, but none of these things have made any significant progress over the last uh, years. 
However, I think that if they wouldn't be technically very difficult. The real difficulty is the politics of the Eurozone, because you have these layers of decision making. So at, at the European level, you have the different institutions and the Eurozone versus the non-Eurozone countries. You have the too many players involved with uh, too many different conceptions of what the Eurozone should be. So the frugal four and the, the creditor countries and the debtor countries on the other side. Uh, you have too great a power imbalance between these countries that is simply, there's a, there's a cruel paradox in the Eurozone that when cooperation and further integration is, is most needed during crisis, it is least possible because the crisis itself enhances these power imbalances between the countries and it tends to lead to rather suboptimal outcomes uh, policy-wise. And then of course you have the, the national level decision makers. So you know, Germany is often the, the villain in the story because Germany was for a very long time the biggest um, opponent of these for the, these integration steps towards, you know, capital markets union and banking union. The German, the German system is a system of competitive federalism. It has many different decision makers and the, the incentives for the German political elite are, you know, do nothing as long as possible until it gets too bad and then you have to do something and that might as well be the most conservative thing that has the largest common denominator and that's how europe has sort of jumped from one crisis to another and hasn't made any real progress in developing these institutions and i don't think that despite the the recent rumblings about um, you know germany's hamiltonian moment and the new proposal for a an enlarged uh, commission budgets, uh, etc. I don't think that these things, even if they do represent a, a genuine sea change in economic thinking, uh, that they are anywhere near big enough to meet the current challenges in Europe. And there's certainly no, nowhere near the kind of changes that you would need to see in order for there to be the uh, the foundation for a, a, a key currency. So as, as for the projection, I think um, we both agree that the dollar will be there um, at the top of the, of the global monetary system for quite a while, and the Eurozone will sort of um, be on life support for a couple of decades, and then it, it may or may not fail, or we don't know, but there won't be, I think, a, a main, a serious challenge to the dollar anytime soon. Mm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. I mean, and I suppose there'll be some, there'll be a, a fairly imminent test of your thesis, assuming that Biden wins the U.S. presidency, which he's projected to do at the moment. Then we'll be able to see how far um, those, if the con, if uh, the Democrats are able to gather act together with spending, then um, we'll be able to see how far um, thesis, which he presented here, is tested. Um, so anyway, I would urge all our listeners to read the essay. It's fantastically, it's brimming with ideas, is extremely clear and um, is very well, is very timely. So um, thank you very much both for coming on and for uh, taking the time to talk us through your arguments and discussion in the piece. Thanks for Thank us. you.